Welcome to the Early Advantage Biopsy Edition. Now, this just happened yesterday, so keep your fingers crossed. Not a big deal. Um, Goldman Sachs just put out an article saying that, or a report, excuse me, saying that the UK may experience 22% inflation next year as long as energy prices stay relatively high. Now, that is just obscene uh, relative to the last uh, couple of decades, but it's the reality for for many living in the UK, and ironically at a time when the US is kind of maybe over the hump with inflation and getting a little bit better. Uh, This has got all sorts of people worried, not just uh, investors, but pensioners, savers, retirees, and it kind of calls to mind a change in the world or something, I think there's an unrest, a geopolitical unrest, uh, a disruption of factors that have been the case for the last you know, 30 years, if not more. And there is no better person or no better thing or creature to unpack this topic with, in my mind, than Doomberg, a green chicken, uh, not just a green chicken, but but represented by a green chicken. Uh, we'll use the, 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 uh, the, the male pronoun for this case, but Doomberg is one of the most popular Substack accounts selling investment newsletter subscriptions, actually similar model to to South Bank, uh, but you know we're not we're happy to support him. Um, the number six most popular uh, account right now on Substack for subscriptions, which is absolutely amazing, considering this is a business less than two years old. So in other words, you're not just seeing a green chicken; you are seeing a green chicken that is taking the investment world by storm. Uh, the the articles that that Doomberg puts out are on, and Doomberg is a, is a play on Bloomberg for those not familiar with institutional finance subscriptions. The articles that that Doomberg puts out are on point. They're they're, they're cutting. They don't pull punches, uh, and I find them to be insightful. And they they address what I think is the most uh, core issue right now is inflation. It's driven not just by monetary supply, but but also by energy prices. Doomberg is a, uh, an energy expert, as you'll see. So with that extremely long preamble out of the way, uh, Doomberg, welcome and thank you much. Thank you very much for joining us here. Hi, James. Thanks a lot uh, for having us and, and for that very kind introduction. It's uh, it's been uh, an incredible um, you know year and a half or so as we've um, chronicled the energy markets and um, simultaneously um, experienced the growth of, of Doomberg. Uh, and, um, you know, when you mentioned the UK, um, we've been writing about the evolving energy crisis, uh, which started in Europe last year um, since you know, mid 2021. And to watch this uh, slow rolling train wreck um, barrel down the tracks uh, has been really an amazing, uh, stupefying thing, really. And um, on, the, on the positive side for us, it's given us plenty of uh, things to write about. Um, but at the same time, boy, it... Uh, unless we see some uh, urgent change or an unexpected breakout uh, of peace uh, in in Eastern Europe, um, things are are looking pretty challenging uh, ahead of this winter. And and what I like most about how you write is you write in no no BS way, straight to the point. And I think you, um, you uncover I think a truth of humanity, I'm I'm searching for my words here, but I I feel like we've got like the the mother of all first world problems in in many senses in the West, right? We've had a long period of success. We've gotten cushy, we've gotten soft. In many cases, we're almost mildly incentivized to be victims sometimes. And I think that leads to a complaining culture. And I say this as someone who spent 10 years doing business with China. Uh, A lot of my life I've spent in China or more than a year and a half, not a lot, but some sort of a lot. they don't complain because they don't get rewarded for complaining. You know, they get straight to the point and now they've got their own huge suite of problems. And I'm, I'm not going to deny that, but they're very aggressive about certain things in a way that the West is not. Uh, would you think that writ large, the West's energy policies and, and maybe other policies too, uh, sort of 
maybe underscore that that softness or that maybe detachment from reality that that, that maybe started from just being too comfortable. So I, I would characterize it slightly differently, and I, and I think I know where you were headed, which is um, in what's really happened is the um, creature comforts of modern life have allowed the sort of median citizen to become uh, disconnected from the underlying physics that drives it all. Um, we live in a world where um, the, 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 the generation of leaders that we have now have only ever experienced um, lights coming on when they flick on a switch um, or uh, cars starting when they push a button. Uh, or um, food arriving um, because they clicked a few buttons on an app. And um, it becomes seductive to imagine that somehow this all just appears, that this is the natural state of things. Uh, but in reality, of course, um, this is all driven by, uh, behind the scenes, an enormous amount of energy being wasted. And I, and I say the word wasted in a positive way um, because literally, um, your standard of living is defined by how much energy you get to waste um, because you must waste heat in order to drive order. Um, it's sort of a fundamental law of physics. Um, the human endeavor is a constant, unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. Um, right angles do not exist in nature. They must be made. Um, your home, if left un, uh, unoccupied, would very quickly resubmit itself to the forces of nature. Um, you have to keep inputting energy in just to stay uh, in place. You know, this is. Uh, so just fundamental physics, the second law of thermodynamics dictates it. And so um, one of the key themes of all of our writing is, um, you know, energy is life. Um, literally, um, how much energy you get to waste defines your standard of living. And um, we've sort of taken this approach with energy um, using the cover of ESG uh, and the, the, the fear, uh, uh, propaganda and fear around climate change to convince an entire generation of leaders that um, we should be sawing off the trunk of the tree to save the branches. Um, and it's just not how it works. So if you kneecap your energy policy, the entire edifice collapses. And, and that's what we're seeing, unfortunately, um, especially in parts of Europe. And uh, I would say that uh, the US will not be immune if the worst case scenarios unfold. Um, the, the European Union and, and the United Kingdom are critical cogs in the global economy and they're suffering substantially right now. And there's very few scenarios where um, tossing a, a stone that big into a lake like this, uh, the ripples don't reach the shore. Yeah, they're gonna reach the shore and we're gonna feel it here. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's been a very scary time. And I, and I do think um, quickly, well, one thing that we're going to see is a rapid uh, recommitment to the fundamentals of physics soon, or we're going to see a wholesale change in leadership and I, I fear a tiltward right. And and by that you mean nuclear power. I mean, I, and, and by the way, I may I may differ with you politically. Like I, I think global warming is is a huge problem, and I'm, and I'm selfishly as as a you know an entitled Westerner, I love ice climbing, I love cross country sure. skiing, I love down all those winter sports that I'm I'm less able to do now. Um, and and whether that's human caused or not, like I'm less able to do them now. You know, I, I can't do it locally. I've got to fly somewhere and, and ironically warm the earth more, emit more carbon. Um, but I, I kind of see the same head in the sand attitude about that. As it's about nuclear power. I mean, ESG, I, I agree with you. It's gotten ridiculous. I mean, I've written a lot of articles about it recently. I mean, uh, what does it even mean? Um, you know, how is Tesla kicked out of the, the S&P 500 ESG index while, uh, you know, ExxonMobil is still there? Uh, I mean, it's just, and I'm, there's good and bad. We, we still need ExxonMobil, but like, I think the term itself needs an overhaul. But I guess my question is, 
it sounds like we're not really talking about economics. We're talking about physics underneath. Like we have yeah. a physics problem before we have an economics problem. And I, I think I know your view on this, but like to me, it just seems absolutely asinine for Germany, for instance, to, to, to walk away from, you know, these three reactors. Uh, you know, from, Japan is, is moving in the right direction. The U.S. is still kind of trying to decide, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe moving in the right direction a little bit. But like, I don't see remotely how we get there without nuclear power. But that's not even the solution to everything, right? Because a lot of like the U.K., runs the homes are set up to be heated with natural gas uh, and so like we've still got to do something there is that right yeah so let me be clear on on global warming um we have always written um from the vantage point that we accept it as an axiom that um we should design an economy that allows as much human flourishing as possible while putting the carbon emissions count in the denominator so um, we should, if we're, if we're going to decide uh, collectively um, that we want to minimize carbon emissions, um, we should not be forgetting about the human flourishing part. And then we will have real adult conversations about trade-offs between how much suffering are we going to allow versus how many carbon emissions are we going to allow. And as soon as you accept that human flourishing is a coaxium of and alongside to uh, uh, carbon emission reduction, then the only logical path is a, a massive increase, a renaissance uh, of nuclear power, because you cannot be anti-carbon emission and anti-nuclear power and pro-human. It just doesn't add up. Now, we wrote a piece that was a little controversial called Malthusian Malarkey, um, which um, highlighted the, the Malthusian nature of the uh, sort of genesis of the modern radical environmentalist movement. Um, they are deeply anti-human. Um, they want population control. They want less humans, um, and particularly less humans that look like them, and and less humans that live in faraway places. I mean, let's just be very clear. Um, and we highlighted some of the ugly history of the Malthusian origins of, of these organizations. And they could say, "Oh, well, that's not us today," but their behavior is indistinguishable. Um, the the policies they're calling for uh, will um, result in provably result in massive human suffering, um, and. Um, if you come from a history uh, derived from eugenics and, um, and, and your policies today um, result in a massive depopulation, then it's up to you to disprove uh, or to distance yourself from your history. It's not, uh, it doesn't mean they get a pass and the rest of us should just ignore it. Now, um, I'm thinking of the Al Gore mansion, right? I mean, he goes oh, around giving a PowerPoint about global warming, but then he's, I forgot who his electricity bill was per month, but it was, yeah. it was high. Yeah. These, you know, uh, Barack Obama bought $25 million worth of beachfront property. He doesn't believe that the oceans are going to rise that much. Uh, and if they do, he probably thinks that he can build a wall, uh, you know, a seawall around his home. Um, so, but these things are it, good ideas for everybody else, for, for, in other words. Yeah. 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 Uh, they say um, carbon emissions uh, reductions for thee, but not for me. Um, so, if we accept as an axiom um, that uh, carbon emissions should be reduced, and, and I, I'd be willing to accept that uh, for a reasonable price, and as long as we ensure human flourishing. Um, it's okay. Certainly pollution control uh, at a minimum and then uh, CO2 emissions as well. Look, big corporate oil and gas, done lots of dastardly things, polluted lots of rivers, dumped lots of toxins into the air. We wrote a very scathing piece about how corn ethanol ended up in our gas tanks. And, it, and it's, a, it's a dastardly story that most people don't know, which is basically DuPont and, and um, General Motors and, and um, the, the precursor to ExxonMobil conspired to dump tons and tons and tons of lead into our environment. Uh, as an anti-knock, uh, and they, um, when they could have just been adding ethanol, um, uh, which is, you know, a renewable resource and, and an effective uh, anti-knock device. And that's why today we have 
uh, ethanol uh, is sort of a grand compromise. Um, we paid off the senators from the Corn Belt um, to look the other way on this lead pollution problem. And as a, as a reward, um, we're burning, you know, 10% uh, of our gasoline is composed of ethanol. Um, and, and there's no more lead in the get like unleaded gasoline uh, is still a word today that people use because for decades, lead was, it was, was, uh, was being burned and, and spit out of every tailpipe in the world. And it's a, it's a crime. I mean, it, it's criminal what was done. And so we're not apologists uh, for big business or big energy. Uh, we're pro-human pro realists. And um, there is no ethical path to decarbonization that doesn't ride through nuclear. Um, and that's a big, big part of what we write. In terms of uh, handling Russia, I, I've, I've heard some of your views on this. I think right now we're seeing, um, you know, the, this uh, uh, boycott of uh, or just trying to pull back from buying Russian gas, and then Russia itself is pulling back from shipping it. But you have kind of a contrary opinion. I mean, I guess uh, you know there there are two ways to hurt Putin economically. I mean, buy buy less gas from Putin, or uh, you can drive down the price of the gas that that Putin sells. Uh, would you mind walking through that? You bet. So um, this is where our direct experience in the commodity industry um, helps us form what we think is a is a better informed view than um, the knee-jerk reaction that we, we saw um, with respect to Putin. So <clears throat> as anybody who spent any time in the commodity sector knows, um, you can't win a war uh, by trying to, an economic war by trying to um, block your competitor um, from uh, getting their volume to the market. And, and why is that? Um, the, the commodities are highly inelastic and Putin is such a dominant exporter uh, of natural gas and oil that uh, the more successful we are at stopping his oil and gas from getting to the market, the higher the price of those things spike. And so I'll give you an example. Um, Putin, let's say, just use round numbers, exports 10 million barrels a day of oil. The globe consumes um, 100 million barrels a day of oil. Um, and just to give you know uh, audience a, a bit of reference point, uh, the U.S. produces 12, to 12 million barrels a day of oil. Um, so if we cut Putin's exports by half, from 10 million to 5 million barrels a day, the price of oil would weigh more than double uh, and he would make way more money on the 5 million barrels a day that he's selling. Like it, look at natural gas. Um, this is how inelastic natural gas is. Um, Europe, obviously, um, and the UK are deeply, by extension, deeply uh, dependent on Russian natural gas. Um, we were um, trying to plug the gap by exporting um, liquefied natural gas from the US. Um, and these are different units, but they're round numbers. Um, the U.S. produces 100 BCFs a day of natural gas and exports 12 BCFs a day. And one LNG export terminal that was exporting two BCFs a day, predominantly to, um, to Europe, um, UK, um, it blew up. Freeport LNG blew up. And that two BCFs, 2% 2 of U.S. production, roughly 15 to 20% of its exports came off the market overnight. And the price of natural gas in Europe doubled. You see, hmm. and so um, if you just go all the way to the extreme, let's say we put a military barricade around Russia and we completely turn off their oil and gas from reaching to the market, um, there'd be a catastrophe for the world. Um, probably a billion people would starve. Um, our economy would collapse. European economy would, would collapse. Um, the only way to win a war uh, when your objective is to minimize Putin's revenue, which we're all for. Um, because he's using these excess profits to fund his war machine. And if you want to choke off that revenue, you have to flood the field with product. Um, oil traded for minus $37 a barrel at the peak of COVID because there was this um, crisis of lack of demand and no place to put it. Um, if we were producing 
keeping those nuclear power plants open, drilling for natural gas, allowing fracking in the UK and in Germany. Um, just the um, signaling factor of that alone, the jawboning factor of a united Western front that we're going to outproduce Putin, let him put all his products on the market that he can. Um, we're going to create energy abundance. Uh, we're going to make energy very cheap. His revenue would collapse. I mean, it's just very simple math, James. And um, the moment I saw the sanctions, I knew they were going to backfire. We've written about it. We predicted it. We've been right. The ruble is stronger. Uh, you know, constantly hearing from people on Twitter that the ruble is fake. You know, the ruble is fake. It's not fake. Um, he has he has the power. Uh, we gave him that power. He, he's desperately trying yeah. to convert rubles into other currencies now because it's it's getting too strong. Too strong, yeah. And so yeah. we handed him all of these cards of leverage, and um, of course he's going to use it. Um, he, he's not our friend. Um, it, it 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 scratches. I have to scratch my head every time I hear a European leader bemoaning the fact that um, Putin is weaponizing energy. Of course he's weaponized. It's a war. He's going to use every tool available to him. And I, I guess I missed the chapter in um, Sun Tzu's Art of War where you um, hand all your, your leverage to your opponent uh, at every opportunity and then complain about the fact that, uh, that he's using it. Of course, he's using energy as a weapon. We, we're dumb enough to let him to, and we should get smart. Um, the first, you know, if, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, and so I was actually very encouraged by Boris Johnson's uh, outgoing speech today. Um, where he he made a, a strong and thorough case for nuclear power, I, and I, I was left wondering uh, where was this when he was uh, in power. Um, <laughs> but he ran better late than never. And I would say, um, back to a comment you said earlier, we are seeing signs. Um, Japan bringing back nine reactors, um, but most importantly and most rewardingly, and and to his credit, um, Governor Gavin Newsom of California um, just extended Diablo Canyon, Diablo Canyon till 2030, uh, put off a 2025 shutdown. Um, huge about face, 180 degree turn for the Democratic Party in California. I think a very powerful message uh, is being sent there. And congratulations and kudos to uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, with whom uh, we would probably have precious few things we agree with, but uh, credit where credit is due. Um, he made the wise decision uh, for the betterment of his people in, in California. Payne is is a wonderful teacher, um, or at least threat of pain can be, and, and, and California is well made. I don't know if you're following the markets, you know, long ago during the California power crisis, but yeah. I mean, they they won't, they weren't very practical with saying, you know, that they, they didn't want the rate payers paying high rates to their electric utilities. And so they capped it. And, and guess what? You know, you, you can only do that so much before your utilities go bankrupt and then, and then you got blackouts. And and there were some other, I'm simplifying, sure. there's some other factors going on, but they, they did learn, they did learn from that, that if, hey, if you kill the golden goose, you no longer get eggs. Um, and, and. You know, now they're a lot more healthy with their regulation there. And it sounds like they've learned something similar or learning about nuclear power. Yeah. And, and look, um, you can't just we, we are ideologues. We're not political. Our ideology is pro-human uh, and pro-clean energy. So a world where um, nuclear power is an anchor um, supplemented by hydro and wind and solar and natural gas, which is much cleaner than coal um, and um you know, we have plug-in hybrids for our vehicles so that we can abate 80 to 90% of our of our fuel use. Um, we're all for those things. And so if- Let me-, let me it, Go ahead. Yeah, okay. go ahead. I was just going to open up the, the EV topic. So why don't you finish your, your thought and sure. we'll go back to EVs because you have a unique perspective on that too. Well, uh, we just jump right to it. Um, batteries are a constraint, right? And so um, look, making um, a lithium-ion battery, which is the current state-of-the-art technology and will be for several more years, uh, at least until- solid state batteries um, make it to prime time, which we hope they do. Um, you know, if, if batteries are the constraint, then we must manage that constraint. So if I have a 100 kilowatt hours worth of a battery and I have two choices I could do, I could put 
one Tesla Model X on the road and save 100% of the gasoline being used by that person. And let's just assume that um, both scenarios are plugging into a wall that is powered by nuclear power. And so it's, you know, it's, it's basically a, a green uh, transportation vehicle. Um, one alternative is to put 100 kilowatt hours worth of batteries into one car and abate 100% of somebody's uh, CO2 emissions from their tailpipe. Another scenario is to put five 20 kilowatt hour batteries into Toyota RAV4s. And um, those Toyota RAV4s could drive 40 miles before uh, the gas engine kicks in. And um, calculations show that um, the vast majority of people don't travel more than 40 miles in a day. Um, when they go on trips, sure, um, you know, the battery drains out and then they're basically driving the equivalent of a Prius um, and they're getting 40 to 50 miles per gallon thereafter. If we just take a round number and say, I could abate 80% of my fuel use, um, well, five plug-in hybrids, 80 times five is four times more fuel abated than the one battery in a Tesla. And if batteries are a constraint, and they are, um, nickel, cobalt, lithium, pick your favorite, all of these metals need to be mined. And the same environmentalists that are pushing for uh, broad BEV adoption are opposing every new mine uh, application possible, especially in the Western world. And so it's just not going to work. And so um, plug-in hybrids have stand a far better chance of abating a meaningful amount of CO2 emissions, which allegedly is the thing we're trying to solve for. Um, and so the numbers are just irrefutable. Um, in fact, the very best way to do it is to put up four kilowatt hour battery and make a, a souped up Prius for this SUV uh, and get everybody to 45 to 50 miles per gallon. And you would save a huge amount uh, per, per kilowatt hour of battery. Um, but um, this, is, um, this is the case we've made. It's fallen on deaf ears. Um, politicians around the world are infatuated with, with full battery electric, uh, battery electric vehicles, um, much less emphasis put on plug-in hybrids or even mild hybrids, uh, which is a shame uh, because um, if you truly do care about CO2 emissions, this is a far superior path. And, and by the way, about China, I mean, China was happy to pick up the slack. You know, that's why they're 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 the leader in batteries. You know, the, the EV stuff, right? They, they said years ago, oh, we'll 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 take that environmental damage. We'll we won't care. We'll mine. You know, because you know the first world countries don't don't want that. Um, but it, it's the thing that I keep thinking about is there, there's such demand for, I mean, not just for Teslas, right? For buying EVs. Uh, and I bought a Prius years ago. You know, I wanted to help the environment. I could have bought something else, but I wanted a Prius. Uh, there are a lot of people like me. And I think there are a lot of people, I mean, I think by 2024, Deloitte Consulting estimates that more than half of actively managed mutual funds will have some type of ESG component. So it's huge. I mean, people really want to do well. I think I think some politicians want to do well too. But it seems like there's a big information barrier, uh, and and maybe an emotional acceptance slash information barrier at the same time. Um, sort of like you know, vegetarians might make the same argument. I was vegetarian for six years. I'm not anymore. I humanely raised meat, but I used to tell people, "Hey, if you went to a slaughterhouse, you might think about eating meat differently. Sure. Maybe not, right?" But people. Yeah. A, they don't know, and B, sometimes they don't want to know because this stuff is complicated. You know, th there's a lot of, I mean, the, the the EV explanation you gave to me is is not that complicated, and I think I think anybody can understand that with with three minutes or five minutes of thinking. But um, what is the solution? Like, how do we ultimately get better, or are we stuck in this TikTok short attention span soundbite culture that that prevents us from thinking? Look, you know, big picture, we all want to have cleaner energy, all want to pollute less. That's reasonable, but. Like we, we can't get there. It's not as simple as going from A to B. Like we need a little bit different path. 
this is the exact mission of Bloomberg, uh, why we started the Substack and why I think it has resonated and we've been able to carve out the success that we have because we focus on um, distilling complexity and making um, especially technology concepts accessible um, to um, intelligent people who don't happen to have a scientific background. Um, and um, we, we write from a position of experience uh, and with passion. And um, since we're also um, of a mindset of continuous improvement, anytime we're wrong, we learn, you know, we, we like to say, um, Mistakes are admitted to, corrected, and learned from, uh, and rare. And um, and so, um, but when we put a piece out, we're very confident in the research and in the science uh, and in the explanation. Um, we have a lot of opinion as well, of course, um, learned opinion, we hope. Um, but uh, we have found um, since we're addressing a Wall Street audience, you know, we have like 75 or 80,000 email subscribers now. And if you look down that list, it's, you know, bank here and investor there and portfolio manager this and head office of that. Um, this very influential crowd, and uh, to the extent that um, we've been able to um, have a bit of influence with them, um, great, um, and um, try to do our part. You know, um, I too want a clean environment. Um, I happen to have some knowledge about practical ways to do that, as and very very firm that we have to have the amount of human flourishing we're enabling as part of the equation. Um, we are not anti-human. We don't believe um, that we should be limiting the population or that we should somehow. Um, uh, hope to have less uh, people doing less well uh, uh, for the sake of nature. Some, uh, you know, um, some concept of nature that doesn't involve humans. I mean, we're just as natural. We're part of this planet uh, as the rest of the ecosystem. We should certainly be trying our best to limit the damage uh, that we do to the planet, um, including reducing our carbon emissions. Um, but there, there are smart ways to do that, and there are ways to do that that result in massive human suffering. And we're opposed to the latter, and we're very much pro the former. Well, I, I think that's a noble cause and, and, and something that I that I strongly support as well. Just getting a more uh, realistic grasp on on energy and, and, and really many other factors. I mean, you guys talk about energy a lot, but you know, you talk about meme stocks. You've talked about a bunch of different things as well. And we perhaps a different time we can talk about those because I've got some opinions yeah, on those yeah, very interesting yeah, topics yeah. as well. Um, so if somebody is watching and interested, and I think a lot of people watching are interested, they want to learn a little bit more about Doomberg, uh, where would you first recommend they go? Yeah, I would uh, head over to doomberg.substack.com. Um, that's our primary outlet for our writing. Um, free subscribers get a pretty extensive preview for all of our pieces. But um, since going paid in May, um, the bulk of our pieces are now behind the paywall. Um, we do this for a living. Um, we are 100% um, subscriber supported. So we don't take ads and we don't take sponsorships. Nothing against those um, two business models. But for us, we felt like um, having complete editorial control over what we write because we are willing and often do touch on controversial subjects in provocative ways. Um, so we're 100% subscriber supported um, and very, very thrilled. Um, every subscriber is precious to us. And so um, we try to earn and keep everybody's business. And then you can also follow us on Twitter um, at Doomberg T, the letter T is in team. Um, we put original content out on Twitter. It's sort of the, as we were talking about before we turned on the record button is our sort of our free offering is uh, original content, bite-sized content customized for Twitter. We have a lot of fun on Twitter. Um, very fast, dynamic place, Twitter, really the town square. Um, and so, yeah, those are the two main places, James. And look, it was really fantastic. And, you know, happy to come back anytime to talk about meme stocks or crypto or the other things that we've written about. Um, we feel like we can't just write about energy, um, both for the um, attention of the audience and also for our own fun. We have to diversify a little bit beyond that once in a while. So, And one last question. Uh, is the plan to keep the chicken forever? 
Yeah. So the you know the green chicken is our, our brand icon. Um, we we we're anonymous uh, for two two reasons. Um, when we started Doomberg, we had no social media footprint, and um, as you know from with your experience in, in marketing and growing uh, creation content like this, um, content creation, uh, you you can't be remembered if you don't stand out. And since we had no big machine behind us and we were creating this from scratch, um, we decided to go with um, Green Chicken, um, Doomberg. It's just such a great little name. People know exactly what it means uh, when they hear it. And um, we're huge fans of our Bloomberg terminal. And um, you know, we use Bloomberg all the time. As expensive as it is, we think it's worth every penny. And we want to be <laughs> brand ambassadors for Bloomberg if, if, if we could be someday. Um, but we love it. Um, the, you know, Doomberg is, is, is a great brand. And one of the things we found is when um, great anonymous brands sort of reveal the people behind the curtain, it collapses the intrigue and irreversibly damages the brand. And so as long as Doomberg is a thing, our intent is to be anonymous and to, to face the public as the green chicken. And um, I think this is a, a trend, you know, as, as entertainment and education uh, digitizes and, and decentralizes, um, you, you could be whoever you want to be. And um, as long as you're good at it and, and um, you stand out. And so the, you know, we're, we're generating, I think, a million impressions a day on Twitter, which means a million times mm -hmm. a day, the green chicken is flashed in front of somebody's eyeballs. And, wow. and that's a great way to make a brand. You know, if I was just um, my uh, pedestrian face, uh, my ordinary face is the face of the brand, for example, it would be far less impactful and far less memorable. Uh, and so the green chicken, uh, is a, we A-B tested it um, and loved it from the moment um, my editor created it. And um, it's just a, a phenomenon. It's been a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun with it. You know, we put, we animate him, we put him in videos. Um, he's in a lot of our photoshops. Uh, he's got these stunned looking eyes that sort of just capture the disbelief with which we write a lot of our pieces uh, criticizing uh, <laughs> current day policies. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, it's my first time interviewing a green chicken, and I, I got to say, I liked it very much. So uh, awesome. keep it up. Uh, Doomberg, thank you very much for joining us today in this interview, and thanks to you guys for watching at home. Hi there. I'm Brian Christopher, and my voice is a little off, so bear with me. I'm the editor of Follow the Money at South Bank Research, and in these videos, we take a theme and run with it. We normally create wish lists stocks that we would like to buy in the future if certain things happen. But last week we talked about momentum. With momentum, you don't wait until something happens. You take advantage of what is occurring right now. We talked about the positive momentum of energy stocks. I wanna to return to that again this week, mainly because I feel like much of the sentiment out there is that we hope that energy prices will stop rising. And I agree, I want that to happen too. I hope it will happen. But we talk about investing in these videos and hope is not an investment strategy. So let's talk about what is happening. This chart shows the top six performing sectors of the S&P 500 index since stocks hit a COVID bottom in March, 2020. You can see that the second through sixth best sectors all moved in a similar fashion. Energy stocks, the white line, did for a while, albeit with more volatility, but then they separated from the pack to the upside. Russia invaded Ukraine on 24 February, but you can see that energy stocks had already started moving higher at the start of the year. Over the weekend, the EU Commissioner for Economy said the EU is not afraid of Putin's decisions. To which I said, what? You're an economist, not Tyson Fury. What did that mean? 
He said the EU is ready to react if Russia's halt of gas continues. As I film this, Russia has said Nord Stream 1 will remain suspended until the West lifts its sanctions against Russia and Russian companies. The reaction the economics chief outlined that the EU would pursue if gas doesn't flow is that the region would save energy and share energy. He also mentioned the EU as a high level of storage at this time. But that's not very encouraging to me. And I get it. I suspect he's just a bureaucrat who's trying to appease people. But come on. I can't believe the EU is happy with the gas it has in storage or wants to rely on sharing its energy. But there are some positives here. For one, the U.S. has less gas in storage than normal at this time of year. Some of this has been exported to Europe. In the first six months of this year, U.S. companies have exported as much liquefied natural gas to the U.K. as they did in all of 2021. This is also true for France, Spain, and Poland, and almost true for the Netherlands. They'll get there shortly. In fact, data source Refinitiv shows 68% of U.S. gas exports through June went to Europe. Only 35% went to Europe in 2021. That's a good thing. We've also learned that Germany is going to keep at least two of its nuclear plants, which were set to close this year, on standby, just in case. And there are likely to be other factors that arise before you access this video. But I believe there are still reasons to be cautious. One of the main worries is the upcoming colder temperatures. And the market is suggesting that caution could continue to benefit energy stocks. Here's the setup as I film this. The S&P 500 index in the US peaked on 16 August. Since then, it's down almost 9% as of Friday's close. The U.S. markets were closed on Monday. And it's not just the S&P. The FTSE 100 peaked three days later on 19 August. It fell more than 5% into Thursday's close because, of course, the U.K. markets were closed last Friday. And the TSX Composite Index in Canada peaked the same day as the S&P 500. It then fell almost 1,000 points nearly 5%. While the FTSE has weathered the market storms the best of these three this year, all of them are down. But we've seen some pockets of strength over the past few weeks. I looked at the performance of all the stocks in these indices since the peak of the S&P 500. Not many of those names rose since 16 August. Only 58 stocks were in the green over this time frame. This table shows the sectors they're from. Of those that were positive, the great majority were energy stocks. To be clear, a few of the Canadian stocks with positive returns were uranium stocks, not oil and gas names. It's correct to say that the bull market in oil and gas stocks started some months ago. By contrast, the bull market in uranium is just getting started. But that's a topic for another video. The mid-August peaks of these markets coincided with a recent bottom in the crude oil price. Per Bloomberg, the Brent crude oil price fell to less than $93 a barrel on 17 August. That was its lowest price since the start of February. But now it's moving up again. And I suspect the headlines that we continue to receive 
will continue to be bullish for energy. I encourage you to consider them. And as I've said in these in past videos, if you have a reason to believe that the issues between Russia and Ukraine will cease in the near future, you should stay away from energy. Until that thesis changes though, I want some exposure. By the way, the two UK energy stocks with positive returns since mid-August were Shell PLC and BP PLC. The tickers are SHEL and BP slash on the LSE. These companies should continue to benefit as energy prices remain strong. They're also participating in the broader green energy transition. That continues as well. That's all I've got for you today. I mainly just wanted to say some things out loud because I know we all hope things will get sorted out. We're making progress, but I encourage you to remain cautious. We aren't in the clear just yet.